This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine's big interview with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. This week, our guest is Aidan Aslan, the Briton who was captured with survivors of his Ukrainian Marine Battalion by the Russians in Mariupol in April 2022. Tortured, forced to appear in propaganda videos and later sentenced to death by a court of Russia's puppet statelet, the Donetsk People's Republic, he was eventually reprieved and exchanged in a prisoner swap. He's now written a book about his extraordinary experiences, Putin's Prisoner. We should also say that the interview is very long and detailed. And because we don't want you to miss a minute of it, we've decided to break it into two. So half will be on this week's episode and half on next. Aidan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your background, where you were born and brought up, and how you ended up, first as a foreign volunteer fighting for the Kurds against ISIS in Syria, and later, of course, for a battalion of Ukrainian Marines against the Russians? So I'm originally a British citizen, full British roots, no Ukrainian, no Kurdish. Grew up in uh, Nottingham, England, in the town of Newark-on-Trent. And for the vast majority of my life, never had any aspirations to go into the military. And then in 2011, the Syrian civil war started. And I remember following that from like the very day it happened, like a lot with the protests and then when it broke out into civil war. And then fast forward a few years, by that point, we'd already pulled out of Iraq and ISIS had began to gain power and started spreading around both Iraq and Syria. And I remember at that point, I was like keen trying to like push to go into like the police. Um, that was my main career ambition in life. And uh, we had the images come from Sinjar where the Yazidi refugees were fleeing to the top of the mountain to basically get away from the ISIS militants. I remember seeing a video at the time of, of a Western journalist that was riding with a, an Iraqi helicopter. And I remember s seeing him like record what was going on there and then they ended up trying to like rescue the Yazidi uh, refugees who were fleeing and at that point I was pretty pretty annoyed 
with the way that, that Iraq was handled, like after we pulled out, it was a complete disaster from the very beginning. Um, and then obviously we had the images with ISIS gaining power. I, there was like a moment where I just thought to myself, I could either sit home, continue to watch what's going on and start complaining every day with nothing happening in return, or I could actually try try going out there and like actually doing something. And it, it was a month or two later when I saw a news report about Western volunteers that are going over to uh, Kurdistan to fight with the Kurds in the fight against Islamic State. And I think that was like the moment that I made the the choice that I'm going to go out there to do it. So I thought about it for like quite a while. And eventually I, I, was, I made the decision and said I'm going. That's basically pretty much how I ended up get into Syria like I, I managed to make some contact with a Kurdish contact in North Iraq and I flew there and from there I was taken into Syria pretty easy uh, thing to do if you know where to look hey I'm interested in the you know your first kind of contact really is via a kind of you know a report a media report and some of us might think oh well what I would will do and I'm sure some people do do this is I'll go and bear witness if you like uh, to what's going on but you had a much more dramatic reaction, which is, I'm going to fight. Can you tell us a bit more about how you arrived at that decision? Um, so because I've been following the conflict from the very beginning, like I was quite absorbed in what was coming out of the Middle East. I like paid attention to like the geopolitical side of stuff and then also like was following everything with the atrocities that was going on with ISIS. And I, I think the biggest thing for me was just the fact that I couldn't see anything going on to help these people. It was more or less just talking about it, but nothing actually being done. And this this was just, just before, I think, like a, a year before that the coalition decided to uh, start helping the Kurdish uh, forces with air, airstrikes and other similar like bits of support. So for me, it was more like a moral obligation to actually go out there and do something when no one else is doing doing it. Aiden, there's a particularly grim bit in, in the book when you're in Syria, when you're bombed by American planes. I mean, obviously, it's an error uh, that's been made, but nevertheless, it must have been utterly horrific and terrifying for you to have had that experience. And clearly, you note that you, you, know, you suffered the after effects of that, panic attacks and and other, I suppose, indications of PTSD. It makes your decision to go to Ukraine in 2018 even more extraordinary, given what you'd already been through. So what was your motivation to go there? Uh, I'll say a big motivator, aside from like wanting to start the new life, was the just being in the military. It was more... Because I, after I came back from Syria, because of everything that you, you see over there, and then you just come back and... Like especially like in my hometown, like you you come back here and then you listen to like what people complain about, and it's very minuscule to like what actually is going on in the world that's actually important. Um, so I, I would say I was probably frustrated with pretty much like civilian life, and I, just because I couldn't stand hearing people complain about like like really pathetic stuff in my eyes, um, when there's like so much injustice and other like similar things going on in the world. Um, and then there was also the the appeal of uh, wanting to to go there to serve three years in the military, take citizenship, and start a new life where I'm in a new environment and 
at that point I I felt I would be able to adapt to it a lot better just because of the uh, the change in culture and, and whatnot because it wasn't what I was used to in Britain where the culture is a lot more I'd probably say arrogant maybe a bit ignorant if that makes sense. Had, had you met your partner Diana at that point? Aiden. No, at that point, when I went out there in 2018, uh, I enlisted with the Ukrainian military um, at the uh, recruitment center in Kiev. I went to training for two months at a Ukrainian military training center down in Mykolaiv. And then after that, I was sent to my battalion. And it wasn't until probably a year later that I, I met Diana online. And at the time, we were deployed to the front line in East uh, Ukraine in Donbass. And we, we started speaking, and then once once we finished our deployment and returned to our like home base, um, I, I booked a ticket to go to Lviv and uh, go meet her, and then we hit it off from there, basically. Now, you describe um, some of the conflict in 2019 uh, when you were on the front line in Donbass, as you say, Aidan, as a phony war. Can you tell us what you mean by that? And also the, the frustration you and, and other Ukrainian soldiers must have felt at effectively having one arm tied behind your back in terms of your, your ability to engage the Russians. So when I joined in 2018, uh, it was at the time the NEN president, President Parashenko, was in power at the time. And when I went to the front line for the first time in early 2019, it was just in the run-up to the elections. So like, on this deployment, we would see a new president at some point. And I remember Zelensky was uh, doing his uh, president campaign, uh, like aim of like trying to bring peace to the uh, to the conflict in East Ukraine. A lot of us were skeptical because at at the time that the uh, front line was like pretty active, like the only real like kind of law there was there like, or rules, so to speak, was that no one went forward or no one like came back. You would shoot at each other. Like someone would, someone would start shooting and then, and then eventually it would stop when mortars start. So there was a lot of death, like pretty much every day on the front line. And then when Zelensky like came into a uh, presidency, he, one of the first things he did was uh, do the recommitment to the Minsk ceasefire agreement. And I remember because I was uh, because I was deployed on the front line at the time, I was able to see it in effect. So the night that we uh, that this ceasefire was like being recommitted, like our commanders, like, as I mentioned in the book, like our commanders came to us and like told us like basically like no one's to shoot. If anyone shoots, you're going to have to speak to the commander, um, which may basically meant we're just going to get punished. Obviously, because I was on guard duty at the time, it goes into effect. I was able to witness it firsthand. And I started at 10, 10 o'clock and then I finished at one o'clock. And I just remember it was five minutes into the ceasefire. And at that point, like, we're not allowed to do anything, basically. And we were pretty optimistic. Like, it was, like, pretty quiet. Like, in, like, the run-up to the uh, hour it starts, like, it was, like, super quiet. And I was thinking, oh, maybe this actually might work. And then, obviously, five minutes later, like the uh, Russians in the opposite trench from us, they they started shooting pop shots at us. Um, so, mm. me and my friend were just observing. Still, like we're not doing anything. And then one of the rounds like comes through our like observation hole and like hits like some of the uh, stuff behind us. And then that's when we like start like saying like, should we fire back? Like because they're, they're obviously shooting at us. 
Um, and then, then we called it in, and uh, the command basically told us, like, hold fire, like, don't shoot, just write it down in a document. And from that moment, it just pretty much turned into, like, this fake ceasefire where where the Russians have no uh, no re- repercussions for actually shooting and would have taken the shots, basically. We had Overseer, the ceasefire monitoring group, they they were monitoring the front line, but the, the biggest problem with them was because they monitored both sides, they like in their daily reports, they would never they would never tell you who's breaking the ceasefire the most because they're trying to remain neutral, but it's also the, the biggest problem with the whole like like ceasefire monitoring group. So I think that was like a, a big part of why the ceasefire failed, because they they refused to like tell outside observers like who was breaking the ceasefire the most um but i i do remember when we we would be on the guard you'd always be notified just be aware there's an overseer drone like flying overhead so you don't mistake it for like a a russian drone and it it, it pretty much just turned into like this this fake phony like ceasefire because you'd be at times you'd be on guard duty and they would start shooting at you like with like RPGs or Dishika, which is a um, heavy machine gun. Or there'd be cases um, like back in, I think it was September time or middle of August, where we had uh, four of our guys from my company. They, they went out into their trench to do some just essential maintenance on the trench, like to clean it. But in the night, uh, Russian troops had entered the trench and laid down a mine. Um, they laid down a Mon 50, which is a anti-personnel mine. And when these guys went down to like just clear the trench, like they they set the mine off and it, it killed them all instantly. Um, and then like a month later from that, there was my senior sergeant and then another person from our company. He uh, ended up being killed by a sniper um, when they were observing. And I remember on these occasions. Whenever someone would be killed, that would be the moment when, when that position would start to retaliate, because someone's being killed, obviously. But much further, like into the like into this new recommitment, um, where we've just been, we just get shot at. Like we can't do anything. We just have to report it and write it down in a document. So a lot of us were getting fed up because we were just basically not able to do anything, and we just had to go along with this like fake ceasefire while we've got our hands tied behind our back. And then back in 20, I think it was 2021, they brought in a new protocol to add to it. So if any like position basically like returns fire or if anyone shoots or anything like that, then you'll get something what's co- which is called like a, de- a Dahana, which is like a uh, payment uh, punishment. So you would uh, lose, you would lose pay effectively so if if a position was shooting at the enemy, then they would uh, the whole position would get the pay reducted. And then I think it was back in twenty 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 well late twenty one I think it was they they brought in a extra bonus um, a ceasefire silence bonus. So if like positions uh, didn't shoot, they would get like an extra like two hundred dollars um, for like keeping to the ceasefire, which a lot of people kept to because it's like an extra $200. Can you tell us where you were when the war reignited in February 22? 
So I, I was based in the village of Pavlopol, which is just down the road from Mariupol. It's um, approximately like 10 minutes east of Mariupol. Um, we'd been there for like the past like three years on like multiple deployments. So like we knew the area like pretty well, like the locals knew us. And um, at the time, I had just recently transferred to the mortar company, which is in like simple terms, basically like light artillery. So we would be based behind the front line, and then we would respond if there was a if there was a reason to respond, um, like if someone died or there was a, a Russian unit trying to like sneak into a uh, Ukrainian position, then we would respond with support. And I remember like watching everything that was going on in the news and the geopolitics between Russia and the West, and. I remember seeing the images that were like going around on the internet of like the massive like military troop movements that were like moving towards the border. I was keeping track of that and I think the moment that I made my decision that this is this is an invasion like preparation was the moment that I saw like logistical vehicles being moved en masse and also the medical uh, vehicles like moving to points around Ukraine, and I, and I remember reading the news as well at the time. And like so many people were like predicting that this isn't an invasion; it's just a scare tactic. They're just scaremongering, and I kept like saying to everyone, like, "No, this is preparation for an invasion because of the mass scale of it." Your first thought, Aiden, understandably, was for uh, Diana's safety. I think she was in Mikolaev at this point. Um, yeah, and. It's very interesting, the conversation you had with your commander, I think a lieutenant, in that you said, look, you know, I need permission to go and go and help her, help her get to safety. And he actually said to you, it's your decision to take. So what happens next? So when this this happened, just so people understand what the situation was, Russia like launched a full scale invasion of Ukraine. At that point, it wasn't just an an attack in the area where I was. It was now an attack behind us. Mykolaiv was a city on the Black Sea, just in between Odessa and Kherson. And Russian forces are pretty much steamrolled from the Crimea border all the way through Kherson and were now on the outskirts of Mykolaiv, where where our home is. And at that moment, I, I was like, I, I, I can't protect her here. Like, I need to get there to protect her. And my idea was to get there, get her to safety and defend Mikolaev because that's, that's where my home is. But I remember I, I, I went down the trench and as I was like going, going to the end of the trench, um, there was a lot of artillery and stuff going on. It's quite a long distance to get back to the main like sort of normal area uh, where we were. And I just said, I said to myself, like, there's no way I'm going to get out of this area like a, without being hit by artillery and just, I, I just took a step back at that moment and said, okay, I should probably stay here and do what I can and uh, see see where it leads us. Because I, I knew if I if I did try to go, like I'd most likely just be killed by artillery because of how heavy it was that day. So how did you end up in the Illich uh, steelworks for this epic siege in Mariupol? Can you, can you talk us through that? So on, on the first day of the invasion, we started coming under fire around 4 a.m., and we basically held our positions for about probably 11 hours until we were finally given the command to uh, retreat. Um, so we, we retreated three kilometers back and then we spent like maybe a day or two on the on the fallback until we eventually reached the Illichar uh, Steelworks in Mariupol. Once we got to that point, 
we were basically reorganizing and setting up our defenses for the uh, for the battle for Mariupol. Essentially, I, I knew at that point, given the situation, because because I managed to get some phone signal, I was able to see what's going on elsewhere, and I could see that Russians were pushing to us from uh, Crimea. They'd already taken Melitopol, um, so I knew it would only be a matter of days before they. Uh, arrive from our uh, west of the city um and I, I always knew that would be one of the things that would happen and i knew if we didn't leave mariupol there'd be a very high chance that we will be ending up encircled so that that was a key thing that like stuck with me in my mind however at the same time like the morale of the ukrainians was pretty high everyone had been expecting this like everyone always said that this is going to happen because of the uh, how much the Minsk ceasefire failed with Russia's commitment to it. So we always knew it was going to end up in like armed conflict. We just didn't realize like how how strategic and like important Mariupol would be for the rest of the invasion to fail basically. So um, so we've effectively been like encircled by the 10th of March. By that point we were dug in we, we knew it was going to happen. And uh, the morale at the time, like Ukrainians were like high morale, just because at the time they they knew what it was they were fighting for. Like quite a lot of the people in the Ilichar, like steelworks, had family, friends inside Mariupol, so there was quite a lot of motivation to like, defend this city. And then obviously um, later on in the month, at the end of March, by this point we started running low on uh, food and supplies. We started taking like a lot of heavy, heavily injured civilians, like military. Um, Russian forces were like day by day closing in on the city, so it it was definitely a difficult time for us. Um, I will mention though, there was one moment where our morale just went through the roof, which was when we uh, I was on guard duty one morning and we got a call through the radio saying there's a friendly helicopter. Don't shoot at it. And I remember just like hearing and I was like thinking to myself, like a friendly helicopter. I was like, how the, what? Because at that that moment in time, like we were 145 kilometers away from Ukrainian lines. So when we heard it, we're like quite shocked because it's the last thing we expected to hear. And I remember seeing it like it was like flying in the distance and I was just like totally like mind boggled. I was like, is this a good thing? Like, does this mean like people are coming like towards us or is there something going on to like help us? And they did it quite a few times. So there was quite a few times where the Ukrainians managed to fly through Russian defenses and get through to Mariupol airspace, which at the time was heavily uh, controlled by Russian forces. Although not, not a hundred percent though, because we, we managed a few times on a few occasions. We, we managed to shoot down, I think, two or three jets that the Russians had, and that was just using the standard like Soviet-grade um, anti-air stuff. But obviously, like because we were in such a difficult location because of how far away we were, like supplies were running like dangerously low, and it wasn't until the week of April when... We had been like we essentially we'd been preparing to try and break out from Mariupol for like, the entire time we we're there. Like we were still like, we were welding steel onto the side of vehicles because we knew sooner or later we we're going to have to try and break out. And in the first week of April, we 
basically got the command to like load up into the vehicles and everyone came from their positions in the city to to the steelworks to make a break for friendly lines and um, we were waiting to go we like we we're just waiting for the command it was like probably 12 o'clock at night pitch black there was fog and i was like pretty determined i was like this has a potential chance of success just because of how heavy the fog is and for some reason like last minute the we get the command to stand down and everyone returns to their positions but what happened earlier in the day before that we had loaded the vehicles up with the ammunition or the battalion ammunition that we had like for the entire like siege so when when we were stood down and we returned to our locations the, the vehicles that were packed and ready to go they were hidden away in the in the factory and then the next day after that the Russian aviation like managed to like locate where it was and they dropped a bomb. The first bomb didn't go off, but then they came back around and dropped a second bomb. And that's obviously when the ammunition completely got destroyed. And I remember just being in the bunker when, when it was cooking off, there was just so many explosions. Everything was just up in flames and explosions. And the look on people's faces in the bunker at the time, you could just sense everyone thought the same thing. Well, that was extraordinary, wasn't it? Do join us in part two and hear the rest of what Aiden had to say. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this week's big interview with Aidan Aslan. This is what he told us next. Aidan, tell us about the uh, the events leading up to the surrender and the various options you and the other members of your battalion had in the steelworks. And can you go, can you give us some idea of the conditions as well? Because I think to 
listeners, you know, it's uh, it sounds like a pretty horrendous uh, place to be. Uh, so if you give us some feel for the kind of, you know, the, just the actuality of what you were, you were all undergoing there. So by the first week of April, we'd practically been under siege for about a month and maybe a week. So by this point, the Russian the Russian forces were like pretty much dug in outside of Mariupol, and also they'd started entering parts of the city to the uh, west and also parts of the east. I mean, it was during the first week of April where we saw the first mass surrender of the 501st Marine Battalion. That was like one of the first videos that came out of like a mass like surrender of Ukrainian troops. I actually remember seeing the videos at the time and people online were like saying it's fake it's fake and i, I like i remember i made a i got a message out and said like it's true because i i saw someone i recognized in one of the videos but to just put it into like perspective from like our point of view like when that happened like there was there was so much like misinformation going around like there's like so much like rumors and stuff so it didn't affect us too much but like it put us in like a bit of a more tighter predicament because the area that they were covering was like quite a strategic area on our flank so because there was now no longer anyone there they effectively like had the russians like moving even closer to us so it was only going to be a matter of like days or like a week until we would have to be faced with the option of surrender or whatever the opposite would be and also at this point we started running dangerously low on food it went from being like three meals a day to basically just soup and then eventually that stopped on the 5th or the 7th of april so we pretty much were scavenging trying to find what we can find around the factory biscuits or whatever someone might have like left up top we would like go and find it i, I managed to at one point there was a room um, near where the the cooks used to do the uh, kitchen stuff. The military cooks like joined the whole like encirclement, and uh, there was a room where uh, we thought there might be some like like MREs, like meals ready to eat, um, like leftover. And I remember I went up there to go have a look because at this point I was like planning, like I was, I knew the reality would be that we would have to probably like try and get out in a mass breakout. So I was like packing my bag like quite quite a few people like had the same idea and i managed to go up there i found a uh like a box of like mres that was like hidden under the massive amounts of like water bottles that we had i came back down to my bunker and one one of the gals in in our battalion like she saw i had a mre and she she asked me where, where did i get it from and then i i said i'll, I'll take i'll show you and i went to go put my stuff down and I went back up the stairs of her and we went over to the uh, room where it was. Uh, we found found the box again. There's still plenty to go around. And I grabbed some extra stuff to give to some of the guys in my uh, unit. And she grabbed hers. And, and just as we're turning, uh, like to head towards this door, so so just so people can like picture it, like when this like huge warehouse, like so to speak, it's about a kilometer long in, in length. And inside of it, it's just this huge like, factory sort of steelwork sort of like image um so like there's like a huge roof and uh, side walls and stuff and then there's like buildings inside of it just because of how huge it is um so we're in this like storage room and as, as we're coming out towards the door like we're walking over all the like mass amounts of like water bottles that we collected and stored there 
and um, there's immediately like an explosion, and then we fall to the floor, uh, just because from the pressure, like we we just it's just like natural instinct, you just fall to the floor, and then I remember getting up, like grabbing my uh, MREs that I, that I dropped, and then I, I shouted something to uh, to the girl. And at this point, like we're looking up and we just can't see anything because all the dust is like kicked up. Like, so you can't see like a, you can't see anything in front of you. Like you, you're inhaling all this dust. And I remember I went out the door and just quickly assessed like what just happened. And I remember like looking up, I could see like there was like some light coming through like the uh, ceiling. And I, I looked to the right and I could see some sort of like glow, like orange glow. Um, so I, the one of the buildings like next to us got hit with a artillery shell, and as soon as I saw that, like I realized we were under shelling, so I like, immediately shouted to her, like, like just run, because we couldn't see anything, and, th- and in that area there wasn't really anywhere we could take cover, like from artillery. So I told her, like, run back to the bunker. So we just sprinted, and uh, eventually we got back to the bunker. But it was it was just like small things like that, like just going above ground for like any miniscale like activity like you have like a very high risk of dying pretty much um just because of the situation with the artillery how many women uh, troops were there with you in the seal works uh th- there, there was quite a few there was a lot of them were medics um there was some that were in like some of the other units but primarily at least the girls that were in my bunker the majority of them were in the medical unit i think one of them was in one of the logistical units but like it's it's hard. I, I know like in other like areas of the steelworks, there was quite a lot more like females, especially with the brigade, just because of the brigade makeshift hospital that was set up at, at their location. Um, so there's there's probably like I'd say maybe two to four hundred like females as well. So Aiden, can you take us through the sequence of events leading up to the surrender and the options um, you had as to what you'd do next? Okay, so. So just the day before we surrendered, well, it was the the morning of that day, we attempted to try and break out. Um, we were all ready to go. We, we took the vehicles that we had welded steel plates onto the side of them and people people abandoned positions and they came came to our location just waiting for the call call to like start advancing like to try and break out towards ukrainian lines which was like at that point 140 kilometers away um the, the weather at that time like it was like dense like really thick fog um it was like 12 o'clock or one o'clock at night and um eventually we we got stood down and everyone returned to their positions so fast forward to later that day our trucks are still like ready to go because we're gonna attempt a second one and at some point in that day i think it was mid-afternoon some somehow some way like the the russian aviation like knew where the the trucks were and they they came in they dropped a bomb it didn't go off and they came in for a second run and it hit the bomb the bomb detonated and it hit like all the battalion ammunition so that was all gone uh the scene in the bunker at the time when everyone was hearing what was going on was like pretty dismal and also at the same time when that happened uh the the russian tanks that were in view of us, they started uh, shooting at our position. So we had the the explosions that were going off from the uh, ammunition, and we also had like tanks like shelling us. So it got to like one point where the tank rounds were just going off, and it would send the pressure wave through the through the bunker, and like stuff would be falling off. Uh, it, it reminds me a lot of the scene from the end of the film Downfall, 
in some ir- ironic uh, way. <laughs> um, just because I remember at the, at the end of that, like just the sounds that you could hear in the uh, in in Berlin, with all the heavy artillery and stuff, it, like it reminded me a lot of that. And then it was later that night. I think it was around 11, I think. My commander came to me, or I think one of the guys woke me up and said, like, get ready. And then my uh, my company commander came to me and he he said to me, like, you've got a decision to make. And he's saying this to me in English because he speaks pretty good English. Um, you've got a decision to make, but you've got, like, 10 minutes to make it. And he basically just told me that you can either come with us and we're going to try and break out on the vehicles or you can go on foot and try to escape. Or you can stay here and surrender officially with everyone else and the injured. As soon as he said the vehicles, that I knew straight away that would be that would be pretty much suicidal, or like it's just not going to work. It's just not going to be a success. And that goes back to like my experience from Syria with like seeing ISIS like do the similar like thing, trying to escape from a city in a convoy where they then get obliterated by artillery and aviation. So I knew that wasn't going to be the one that will be going on and at that point i was pretty i was i was pretty open to escaping on foot so i asked him like like who would it be going with and he said it would be with the group from my like the group that he pointed to that was like nearby and um, then i asked him like how many people are like getting out on foot and then that's when he turned around and said like everyone in the steelworks who's choosing to go so maybe like 400 500 people so I knew at that point, because by this stage in the encirclement, Russia had effectively done a second encirclement of the steelworks. So we were also cut off from the people in the Azov-style steelworks. So like it was a very small territory with a lot of people. So I was thinking like there's no way anyone would be able to get out with the amount of people that are also trying to get out with everything else going on. So then I decided that the best option would be to just surrender officially. Um, I knew 100% I still wouldn't that wouldn't give me any protection or anything but it would probably be better surrendering than getting caught trying to escape especially if I'm on my own or if something happens and like I I end up getting lost or something similar to that so I, I knew it would definitely be a better option like compared to some way Um, my way of thinking was like at least they might have some sort of decency to respect something if I've surrendered officially. And then it also meant I was able to uh, tell the outside world what's happening. So um, I I said to my commander, I'm going to surrender. I I went to my bag and I literally just emptied my entire bag and just gave him my, I gave my commander my power banks and uh, gave him all my food I had like hidden away and uh, just gave him anything that, would be of use to him because I'm not going to need it, obviously. So I, I gave it to him and then shook his hand hand and said, good luck. And then, then his group went and then I was pretty much left with the guys that were surrendering. I think at, at this point, there's maybe like six to 700 of us just because other units had come to our position because they evacuated the hospital and like other positions had been evacuated. And it was around, I think about around three or 4 a.m., by now, the the people who are walking out, they've already gone. And like now we're just sitting there waiting for the next stage of it. And I, I remember I started going through my phone and started deleting everything. I factory set it. And uh, when I did that, um, I was I was pretty close to like just destroying my phone. And then I caught a glimpse in the corner, like someone had 
turn the Wi-Fi on because the the commanders are like now gone, and the only senior commander was a officer from the battalion who was now in charge of us. So he opened the the Wi-Fi up so people could speak to their families. And uh, I, I saw that I went over there, connected the Wi-Fi, and I realized I forgot I deleted everything. So I made a, a complete brand new like Facebook throwaway account and just onto my account and just found family members and I was just spamming them like through like messages like pick up, pick up. And then eventually one of my friends I like, messaged, he he replied back and I just told him it's Aiden, like can you can you call me? I need to speak to you, it's urgent. Um and then obviously he called me and I told him what what's going on. And he'd been following our situation, obviously, and I said to him like there's nothing we can do like we've got to surrender and he was like telling me don't do it like try to escape like get out on foot and i was like telling him we've tried like it's it's too late now so i said to him can you can you get a message to my my parents and just tell them to pick up because i need to speak to him and i need to speak to my fiance um so they they managed they got word of it and they they picked up i told my mother that i'm planning to surrender um and whatnot and i told her to tell my fiance i love her and then i tell her to also wake her up as well because i'm trying to contact her so after i say goodbye and say my i love you to my mother i i uh, call my fiance and uh, i tell her because she's already been told anyway but i tell her that we're surrendering and i tell her that i'm most likely going to be in captivity for maybe a year a few months or even longer I don't know, but I remember at the time, I remember I, I was basically lying because I, I honestly didn't know what to expect. I was half expecting just to be shot on sight. And then eventually I ended the call with, like, I love you. Uh, I promise you I'll return. And then I put the, put the phone down and then I called my friend one last time and just uh, told him, like, we're going to be used for, like, propaganda. And then just told him basically to d- don't let them forget about us. Just keep pushing the news and reminding people and then after that i went to the steel like into the factory again and this is where i decided to film a proof of life video because i i knew that in the chance that i am killed at least people knew what my what happened to me so i did the proof of life video and told that we were surrendering and then I managed to send it to my mother and told her to send it to my friend. Um, and I managed to get out, thankfully, uh, because of the Starlink. If we didn't have Starlink, I wouldn't have been able to say anything to like family or friends. So I got the proof of life video out. And at this point, it's probably about like quarter seven. And I, I basically masterly everything on my phone again, do total factory reset, and I start destroying every electronic I've got. I take my camera and make sure to destroy that. I even destroy the lens so that if someone does find it, they can't use it. And I basically hide it all in like the uh, bunker septic tank uh, just because it's full to the brim of everything. And then I just get a stick and like shove it like down to the bottom because I know no one's going to want to like look through that. And then once that was done, I went to the top. And at this point, because our commander in the bunker, he'd spoken to the Russians on the radio and they asked him because I, I was speaking to him in and out because I was like near where he was. And they the, the Russians like asked him, like, who do we want to surrender to? Do we want to surrender to the uh, Russian forces or do we want to surrender to the uh, DPR, the Donetsk People's Republic? And obviously my, my commander chose for us to surrender to Russian forces and then after that, I go up topside and there's like some of the guys from my unit there and they're just like mucking about. Um, 
enjoying the last few moments and then there was the moment when i went back into the into the bunker and i saw an officer who was like drinking champagne i i went and got some champagne um and drank some with him and then there was another friend of mine he was contemplating suicide and i i basically talked him out of doing it he was like super scared and i was i basically just said to him like they're not isis and they're not gonna like behead you or anything so he chose not to do that and instead he went into captivity as well and it was shortly it was probably like 20 25 minutes after this that the the guys come to me and they said like take your weapon and put it on the bed like with everyone else's and then we're going to go unit by unit to the surrender point but because the the steelworks territory is so large we have to get into the back of like this truck because it, it would take about an hour for us to walk around there so we get in the back of the truck and there's about like 25 of us maybe 30 and someone's holding a, a white flag and we're just driving through the steelworks and it's like literally apocalyptic you can just see destroyed vehicles on the road of the people that try to get out in the vehicles and we're just driving through and it's like so eerie because there's no you, you're not under threat of being like hit by artillery or anything but there was a part of me that was like thinking to myself like what if this is just a trick and we're just about to get mowed down by like a machine gun or something and then eventually we we get to the uh, point where we're, we were instructed to get off and we get off the truck and we can see one of our other vehicles it's like a um it's like a little uh, Volkswagen camper van sort of thing but a soviet version uh, it was one of the military trucks and uh, we saw that it, it obviously got ambushed from the looks of it and there was a body like uh, 100 meters in front of it so uh, we we weren't sure who it was exactly but we like recognized it was a Ukrainian just because they were wearing the Ukrainian uh, uniform. And as as we're getting organized, we're getting into formation, and we're walking up these stairs across this bridge with our hands up, and we get to the other side, and we see a Russian soldier who's waiting for us, and he in, he guides us back, and as as we're, like, following him, like, we're going past these other Russian soldiers who are, like, set, set up in position, like, waiting to respond if they need to respond. And eventually they leads us into a street in this part of the village where the 501st had previously been. And we get there, we get into a line, and there's like a bunch of other like Russian Oman, like Russia's interior police that are just searching us, making sure we don't have any weapons or anything. And then after that happens, they load us onto a bus and we are driven to um driven to the village of Sartanar, which is about like ten minutes away. Um, it was a village between Pavlopol and Mariupol, and I knew it quite well because we always used to go there when came off the front for like like weekends or something. And uh, we were driving there on we're in this bus, and there's like more, there's like more of us than there is of like the two two uh, Russian guards that were w- watching over us. I was just like looking out the window, like all the destruction that took place, going past places I'd been past like previously that were like look normal, but now it's just apocalyptic and eventually we get to Sartanar and we go into one of the uh, agricultural warehouses that are based there and as soon as we get off the off the bus then that's like when the aggression starts like they start shouting at us uh, like all sorts of curses telling us to be quick like drop everything we have and uh, we, we go into the uh, warehouse and then they instruct us to line against the wall and I, at that moment, I got like I started thinking like that that that's it. They're just going to line us up against the wall and shoot us. 
Um, but they just instructed us to go against the wall and they put us into stress positions with, which was just basically leaning forward with your head so you're off balance and tiptoeing. Um, and then we stayed like that for like 11 hours. And then one by one, like in between this time, they would take someone to the side and you would give them your military ID and documents. And then eventually it came my time to to do this. And I, I went up and gave him my military ID and then gave him my uh, veterans card. And then I gave him my uh, passport, but my passport has a Ukrainian cover on it. Um, so when you look at it, you'd think it's a Ukrainian one. And, and he pretty quickly, he realized like something was wrong. He was like looking through it. And he, he quickly said to me, like, where are you from? Um, and then that's when I said to him in Russian, um, I'm from Great Britain. And as soon as I said that, like he punched me on the face and started to beat me a few times. Um, and then one of his seniors like stopped him, thankfully. Well, that was like my first like experience of like the uh, violence that, that was about to start. Um, but also at the same time, I didn't, I didn't really, I wasn't like really scared, so to speak. I was like, okay, fair enough. Like it's, it's the adrenaline of the front line. Like this sort of stuff happens in all militaries, but like the part where I realized that isn't the case where it goes beyond the, the norms of the limits is when they cock the rifle and like, like, in like trying to like scare me into making me think that they're about to shoot me and stuff like that. That's when I started to get a bit like concerned and it was suddenly the next day. And that's when they basically took me out. So some, some intelligence guys from the Donetsk people's republics, uh, MGB, which is basically the KGB. Um, they came to ask me some questions. Um, they had me in the stress position again. And then they would ask me like, who am I? Like what unit am I in? Um, they said I was a sniper. Um, they, they they highlighted this tattoo. They said I'm a sniper, and I said I'm not a sniper. I'm Ukrainian Marine. I'm in mortars, and then I'm saying this to them in Russian, and they they say like, okay, like we've we've got someone from from your battalion's uh, mortars. If if they don't say the same thing that you've just said, and then we're you're going to be punished. Well, what remarkable testimony! Join us next week for the second half of Aiden's interview when the drama continues. It's pretty gripping stuff. Don't miss it.